Alexa, play Skull Rock Podcast. Playing Skull Rock Podcast from Amazon Music. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome in. This is your first time checking out the show. Welcome, welcome. Every week we talk all things Disney and pop culture with never before heard stories, behind the scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and much, much more. I'm one of your co-hosts, Al John Go. I'm a musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan, also pop culturist. And you can email me, because we love emails, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard. I'm an artist, filmmaker, author, and resident troublemaker. And welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music and Audible. Uh, You can like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Well, we're here for another show, another exciting show. We've got a great guest. We've got uh, Roger Allers in the green room. Uh, He's the co-director of The Lion king and uh we're going to be talking about kingdom of the sun as well uh and that was the precursor to emperor's new groove i am stoked i am stoked i know because it's gonna be fun well i mean i i am a big fan not only of his work but also of the stories behind the stories and uh, can't wait to delve into the juicy tidbits of what made this film, you know, how it, it kind of morphed from one project to the next. And this is, I guess, a, one of those textbook studies of, of how things change and morph throughout the entire development process. That's exactly right, Al John. And this is, a, this is going to be a great uh, discussion and a glimpse behind the scenes of uh, what, what has gone on behind some of these films. Absolutely. So I'm looking forward to getting to that. Right on. Well, I hope you had a great week, everyone. And Dave, hope you had a great week, too. Uh, things are things are moving and shaking here in Music City, uh, I guess, as uh, kids are going back to school. And uh, I guess uh, the fall is right around the corner. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's been blistering hot out here. We've still got this uh, heat wave going on. Yeah. Uh, hopefully we're going to get some relief. And uh, but the, the fires in Northern California and up in the Northwest are just horrific. I, I've never seen anything like it, Al John. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that uh, with some of the infrastructure changes that they actually go in and really have this uh, the forest management happening in California and devote some time to that, because I think that would definitely uh help a lot of the situations that happen year after year after year. They really do. I mean, they, they have to, they have to go in and thin out some of these dead trees. I mean, it's just, it's just fuel for the fire. Well, well, yes, (laughs) literally. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. (laughs) Literally. Yeah. So it's a, it's a big thing, but uh, you know, hopefully you'll get some relief over there, not just weather wise, but also uh, help with the infrastructure there with, with all the trees and the situation happening, but uh, we hope everything's going okay. And, uh, yeah, my heart goes out to the, there was four firefighters that were injured uh, in that one fire yeah. and uh, town was wiped out. 
yeah. another another town, and it was a historic town that had been there since the gold rush days. Unbelievable, you know? Yeah, it's un, unreal. So it's it's been pretty crazy. Absolutely. Um, well, as crazy as it is in California, Hollywood is equally as crazy, if not uh, in different ways. Uh, so we'll delve into that before our interview. But uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and jump into this. Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. So the drama continues. The drama continues in Hollywood as the Bob Chapek-led regime at Disney uh, goes to war with a Marvel star, the one of the center uh, cornerstones of the MCU, Scarlett Johansson, regarding the back-end deals. Why a ton of lawsuits may be next. This comes to us. Uh, you sent me this link from Hollywood Reporter, Dave. Yeah, this is this is unbelievable. This is all mushrooming out of that uh, press release from the company that uh, shamed uh, Scarlett Johansson and mocked her uh, for uh, you know uh, uh, speaking out. Uh, for herself, and, and I find this crazy. I, I mean, this is this is the kind of thing where you talk about a company shooting itself in the foot with a press release. That's exactly what Disney did with this. Let's put the brakes on that for a second, because just so our listening audience is aware, um, Scarlett's legal team had filed a lawsuit against Disney because of the of the fact that the film was supposed to have a full theatrical release and not also stream at the same time simultaneous release because the actors for a lot of these uh, blockbuster films get paid on points on on the back end of the film success in the theater right exactly right so disney had responded when that um when that news went public and i didn't read the 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 press statement that disney released but i'm going to do it verbatim now disney responded to uh, johansson's lawsuit last week saying it it had quote no merit whatsoever and has fully complied with her contract they had disclosed that the star had been paid 20 million and could see a cut from sales on disney plus it's not typical for companies to share this uh, compensation information which is what i believe led to the fact that and you had mentioned uh, several weeks back why Disney was so transparent with the box office and streaming numbers. Yeah, but you know something, I have to say, uh, there there's a lot of people coming out uh, on uh, Scarlett Johansson's uh, defense, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and most recently, uh, you know, we had uh, one of the unions, uh, one of the uh, the Screen Actors Guild said uh, that Disney ha- should be ashamed for bullying Scarlett Johansson in a public statement about the Black Widow stars lawsuit. And I, you know, I got to tell you something, Al John, this is one of those things we said it last week. It's completely avoidable, you know, and, uh, and now this has become this public fight and uh, you, you've got the timeout organization. You got other women's groups coming out against Disney. You've got uh, the, the co-chair of CAA uh, that represents uh, Scarlett Johansson and a lot of other big actors coming out against the studio. I mean, this is this is a PR nightmare. And don't be surprised if there's a sacrificial lamb. 
slam offered up. There will be. I'm sure there will be because, uh, as we all know, the uh, shareholders meeting is going to be happening here in a few days um, that they do quarterly, I I believe, Dave. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, they're going to be announcing earnings, I believe, on Thursday. Isn't that right? Yeah, I believe so. You know, we'll have I mean, we we have audio of that stuff available to us um, for shareholders. But this is this is the thing. Um, Hollywood Reporter and NBC and so many things is basically pointing the finger at Bob Chapek's crew. And, you know, we, 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 we enjoy Disney. Of course, Dave, you're in, you know, involved with the company, but I think that the thing is, is that I was involved. You were, was you was involved. involved with the company, right? Yeah. You wasn't, you were involved with the company. The fact yeah. of the matter is that we all said that, um, and the article points this out. Do you think Bob Iger would, uh, this would happen under Bob Iger's watch? Uh, to let this happen, um, no. it wouldn't. Um, it wouldn't have gone. It wouldn't have gone public. It wouldn't have gone know. public. It would have been nailed and sealed. And and the the insiders have said that even Kevin Feige had been so upset at, at the situation for it to get out of hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, uh, this is there a sacrificial lamb. I'm sure may be the case. But um, boy, it's just it. This is just a. Uh, this is just a really bad mark leaves a bad taste in a lot of fans mouths um as well as uh, you know something you know something al john this is this is another brand withdrawal you know this this is this is not adding to the brand this is diminishing the brand exactly right um well we'll have more details as the story unfolds um but once again, you know, I think uh, Scarlett had been a, a, a just an amazing actress. I, I love her work. She did amazing things for the MCU and and people like that. Um, and, and fans don't forget, you know. That's so, right. You know, that's, that's right. So having said that, um, another interesting bit of news uh, in regards to Disney's uh, growth is uh, a Vancouver facility may be opening up. Is that right, Dave? Yeah. So you know, this is. This was announced earlier in the week. Uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios is going to open a Vancouver facility. Uh, and uh, people say, why Canada? Well, there's a lot of tax breaks to do business up there, especially in the movie industry. Uh, so that's one thing. There's also a big talent pool in Canada. There, There's a huge animation um, community in Vancouver, really talented folks. There's another uh, over in Toronto as well, a uh, big animation community and you know canadian animators they're they're a powerhouse you know there's a lot of really great talent up uh, north of the border for uh for animation and so this is interesting because they're going to be doing a series on moana for yeah. disney plus uh and i'm sure there's going to be some others yeah it says something to the effect of yes moana will be the first series developed for disney plus at the studio and then coming out i guess they're going to be doing some zootopia series for disney plus and mm-hmm. baymax and tiana so they're they're really leveraging all their ips to some great disney plus streaming series and uh that's great i mean you know people are getting tax breaks in vancouver people are getting tax breaks in in florida so it seems like they're just expanding, you know, you know, you where, know where they can it, get it, the breaks. It's going to be interesting to see how long this lasts for, because Pixar opened uh, a remote studio in Vancouver uh, and then they turned around and closed it. Interesting. You know? So, so, you know, I'll, I'll be interested to see, uh, you know, on the hiring end of things, if there, if there are some people in the community up there that are gun shy, 
um, and or or they're just going to take the job and and hope for the best. Yeah, there's something to be said about the reason In and Out Burgers. This is a this is a very interesting thing. I'm going to say, Dave, why In and Out <laughs> Burger only only has so many restaurants located on the West Coast is because they have a very uh, strong hold on the quality and the type of things that they can do with the brand that they can control within a travel uh, decent traveling uh, distance. Same sure. can be said about Disney to some degree as well they like to keep everything close to burbank so uh, we'll see yeah I, I mean it's going to be interesting to see if if uh, the moana uh television show that they're going to do the series uh, uh you know what the quality of that will be like um and uh uh you know it, it'll it, again it'll be interesting hopefully they'll be able to repurpose assets uh from uh the movie uh but I don't know if they even have that uh, facility to do anymore. Understood. Well, speaking of quality, it looks like the Disney plus Lucasfilm animation series, the bad batch has just been granted a season two, which is great. Um, I've been a big, big fan of uh, the bad batch, the spiritual successor of the clone wars animated series, the much uh, hallowed series. So uh, looking forward to seeing that, um, you know, and I've seen every bit of it, so it's a really nice way to kind of uh, further the the Star Wars story that Dave Filoni and George Lucas has set out back in, gosh, the twenty tens, was it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how how was the first season of uh, Star Wars: The Bad Batch? It was great. Like I think it was great. And um, is it what, CG? Yeah, it's all CG, um, uh-huh. CG animation, but they do it in a very much like the the style of um, the Thunderbirds. So oh, okay. you have like the kind of the, the maquette looking, you know, type of style. But I mean, they, the animation has grown so much that they're not, they're not wooden, but they have a lot of that same kind of um, sculpt, you know, sensibility uh-huh. in terms of their facial sure. structures. So and they're, st- they're stylized. They're, st- they're stylized. Yeah. And I really uh-huh. like it because it is canon. So the stuff they're putting out there really lends itself to the story. And Filoni, I know, is trying to to take everything that Lucas had passed on to him in terms of the storytelling because he'd worked under George Lucas for 10 years. And then is putting that into the animation and weaving those threads all the way up until the J.J. you know version of Star Wars. So there's all kinds of seeds that are being planted, much like The Mandalorian. So um, I think it's a it's a show for the entire family, but will definitely appeal to those uh, those Star Wars fans that want more, that want more stories. So um, and it's great. So uh, check that out. And speaking of Disney Plus, uh, I also wanted to mention that they're rebooting Doogie Howser, MD. Day. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I mean, everything in Hollywood gets rebooted at some point. Uh, one of the most memorable things about Doogie Howser was the very first uh, vlog um, and that, that catchy theme song on that uh, clavinet uh, keyboard. But uh, Doogie Kemalo Aloha, MD. I just butchered that name. Um, starts streaming on September 8th exclusively on Disney Plus. I wonder if they're going to cast Neil Patrick Harris uh, uh, as a in, a in a guest role or something. I, I would say, mm-hmm. I would say, Cameo. so. I, I would think so. I would think so. Yeah. But uh, fun. yeah, but there you go. Um, <laughs> she's a 16 year old prodigy juggling a budding medical career and life as a teenager with support of her caring and comical Ohana family. And Ohana means family. Uh, determined to make the most of her teenage years and forge her own path. And uh, there you have it. And uh, I guess 
uh, this is a Stephen Bochco original series. I know that uh, he had a lot to do with the original, but it looks like Jesse uh, and Dana. No, no, that's not right. I'm, I'm just messing up everything because I'm skipping uh, skipping across his press release. But anyway, it's coming out, Dave. What I'm trying to say, it's coming out September 8th exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Awesome. So check that. Um, the world of Star Wars, and I, I, I meant to tie this into the, the Bad Batch, but uh, you know they've got the details on Galactic Star Cruiser. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's not going to be cheap. Uh, I will say this, but um, for six grand, you know, you could take a family of four out to a galaxy far, far away. Uh, Was that six grand a night, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, no, six grand, I think, for two days. For two days. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, oh, wow. Two days. That's such a deal. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, of course, this was teased during the D23 Expo in 2019. Um, this is a two night, two day adventure. It's slated to open spring of 2022. So just right around the corner. Um, it could cost as much or not. It could, but it will cost at least 1200 person, $1,200 per person per day. And of course it uh, includes all meals and admission to Hollywood studios theme park. And there you have it. You don't have to be Jeff Bezos to go into space. You can do it there at Walt Disney World. So, wow, twelve hundred dollars um, a day. I mean that that that's uh, leaving out a lot of people. You know, it, it is a lot of people that are not going to be able to experience that. It is. It is. Um, but they released the the um, the teaser. The hotel itself is actually very small, uh, Dave. I think uh, they are. They have you know maybe a hundred staterooms there something wow. like that so it's a very small very very high-end experience obviously um and it looks like you can cosplay or not uh you don't have to there is a uh, an itinerary where literally there are three or four different points throughout the day where you get to carve out your very own interactive star wars story including you know there's a there's a themed bar of course a themed restaurants there are cast members that all have the the costumes and all the you know, all the different aliens and different things and droids that you can imagine being inside an actual Star Wars uh, universe is all there. So uh, and I liken this to a Disney cruise. But, you know, the thing is, is that this is so highly themed with all the cast members in their Star Wars and alien gear and all, all kinds of stuff. Um, this is really like your own, living your own Star Wars adventure. The things that we were promised that would happen at the parks are going to be happening at a premium price at the hotel. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that does. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, be on the lookout for it. And uh, we're definitely going to talk more about it on, uh, I know on, on my show, uh, the Disney list where Chris and I actually break down the itinerary. So that's going to be a very interesting thing for sure. But uh, Dave, uh, do you have any want or need to uh, stay at the Star Wars hotel? You know, I think I'd love to experience it once, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, but I, it's not something that I'm going to go racing out to do tomorrow. I am saving my pennies, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> maybe when the maybe when the wee willy ones are, are a little bit older um we can yeah, we can yeah. do it but uh, i better start saving now because uh, uh six grand that's that's quite a bit but uh, i can't wait to see the little ones uh brandishing their their pretend lightsabers it'll be a lot of fun six grand i mean go spend a week there yeah <laughs> you know? why well, not? What is that for forty two thousand dollars yeah sure why not you know, I, I just have that. I have that income just all in the bank right now. So I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. Uh, speaking of having it all in the bank, uh, we do have this awesome interview. When it's uh, you want to set the stage for Roger? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, this is really a terrific interview. Uh, we were able to to get Roger uh, to come in uh, and and chat with us on the Skull Rock podcast. Uh, not only about Lion King and uh, but about his career. I mean, you know, so there, there's some great stories here, and and I hope the I hope the listeners enjoy this. Um, uh, Roger really taught, you know, we, we had a great conversation about, uh, behind the scenes on, uh, the kingdom of the sun, uh, movie that was in development that eventually became, uh, emperor's new groove. Uh, so, uh, I think without further ado, we should get to this interview. Well, Al John, once again, we have a fabulous guest on the Skull Rock podcast. We've got my old friend Roger Allers, who is a film director, a screenwriter, a storyboard artist, an animator, and a playwright. And he has the distinction of being the co-director of The Lion King, which is the highest grossing traditional animated film of all time. And he's worked on so many different things. I want to welcome Roger I want to welcome you to the show here at Skull Rock Podcast. It's so great to see you. Yeah. A little applause for you there. And also a voice from from our studio audience. I was going to say it also a voice for radio, Roger. You have an amazing voice. Thanks, Yes. Roger, it's great to have you on the show. And I, I really want to start with something that a lot of our audience would probably not uh, necessarily uh, remember. But you started out early in, in your animation career working on uh, character development, story, and animation for uh, anim- Animal Olympics which I, I remember Animal Limp Day. It's from like the 19, from, from 1980. Yeah, yeah, actually the end of the 70s. Yes. At the end of the 70s. Uh, I had been, uh, my first job was at a, a studio in Boston, a little studio uh, called Lisberger Studios, Steve Lisberger's place. And we did children's television, openings to TV shows, things like that, commercial, you know, commercials and things. And our first feature idea that we were going to put together was this, idea of Animal Olympics, the Olympics, all done with animals. And it was going to be, in, the idea was it was going to be intercut between the actual Olympics. That was going to be, when was that, 1980? Or there, there, was the, there was the 84 Los Angeles Olympics. There was the one before that. So it would have been the, the 1980 Olympics. 1980, right. Yeah. Which, uh, I mean, it was great fun. We started in Boston, couldn't find enough people out there. Uh, although I remember Henry Selleck came through and, and showed a reel while we were there, uh, but uh, gathered some people and then decided, uh, Steve decided to move it to California. So uh, we all moved to Venice Beach uh, to a little studio there. And that was quite a switch from Boston. Wow. Uh, I mean, that, uh, I mean, Venice Beach was very different back then, I'm imagining, yeah, because nowadays it's a, it's a refugee camp. <laughs> well, I know. Well, it's gone through several changes in the last few <laughs> decades. That's for sure. Uh, but then it was uh, a very freewheeling, like I guess it always is kind of freewheeling, uh, kind of the end of the hippie days, the beginning of the roller skating craze. It was really a fun place to come mm. to. Anyway, uh, a little studio there, and we worked on the film, and there were lots of 
sort of Disney refugees at the time. There was Bill Croyer and Brad Bird and uh, Chuck Harvey. And of course, I'm missing people and I'll think of them as I go along. But um, so we were all out in a little tiny building and having a great time. Uh, then the before we finished, uh, what was it? Russia invaded Afghanistan. And to protest that, uh, President Carter at the time decided we would not go to the Olympics. And then boom, the Olympics coverage went down. You know, we had put this whole thing together. So it didn't. Wow. So it, it just anymore. it just imploded. It did. I mean, they, what they managed to do is they put it together. We were doing the winter and the summer. And they managed to put it together as a, a video. And I think then it found a home on cable TV because people had told me, Oh yeah, I used to watch that as a kid. <laughs> that's funny. That that is always funny. Uh, that, that that's amazing. I want to step back just brief before you started your animation career because there there was a little tidbit while I was doing a little research on you and and you and I have known each other for many years, but but I did not know that you lived in a cave in Greece. Uh huh. Okay, can you just elaborate on that slightly? <laughs> what he's not I mean, you, you. You, you graduated college and then took a couple of years to travel Europe or, or travel around Greece? Well, actually, uh, yeah, yeah I, I finished college, finished uh, university, and uh, with a couple of friends uh, decided to go traveling, mainly because I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. You know, I wanted to be an animator, applied to Arts Center, wasn't accepted and wound up just getting, uh, well, just staying in Arizona at the time. Uh, went to Arizona State University and got a fine arts degree. So just majored in drawing and painting. So I did not study uh, animation like I wanted to do. And at the end of that, you know, I could draw and paint and all that. And I thought, what the hell am I going to do with my life? How am I going to earn a living? <laughs> and then I had a friend, you know, who said, hey, let's go traveling. Thought, that sounds like a good idea. So uh, three of us, went traveling around Europe, you know, backpacking and hitchhiking. This was like mm, 1971. And uh, back when hitchhiking was relatively safe. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I had been hitchhiking all over the U.S. as well at that time. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. It was great fun, actually. You met all sorts of interesting people. Had a terrifying ride on the Autobahn in Germany. Oh, my God. It drove so fast. <laughs> um, but, yeah. And then... Uh, it wound up, we wound up just two of us ultimately. And uh, my other friend who was also uh, a painter and all that, we both had always wanted to go to Crete. So we went down to Greece and, well, I was interested in the Minoan culture and we went to Crete and uh, found our way to a little tiny town on the South coast of Crete and rented a little place for like five bucks a day or something. The prices were so cheap and it was wonderful. We just loved this town and loved Crete and everything. And in my friend's explorations, he discovered a cave about a mile and a half down the, the coast, which had been used by a shepherd. So it kind of had a little little fencing over the front and a gate and uh, it was huge inside. And he went, we could live there for free. Yay. So <laughs> we moved into the cave and we lived in the cave. Oh, I guess it was at least a, a month or two. Yeah, it was like two months. Really. And how, how was that experience for you? I mean, was that... Uh, th th was that a life-changing experience to do that, that kind of a thing? Well, I t my whole time in Crete was honestly a very life-changing experience. I don't know what it was, but it was something about that place. The name of the town was Paleohora, which means ancient town. Huh. So it was built, you know, some of the buildings they said were even on like uh, 
like Minoan foundations, you know, uh, like really ancient foundations. And there was an energy to this place, which was just amazing. Mm. Uh, it was a really, really creative and just an amazing time. And living in the cave was I had certainly never done that. We had no running water. We had to cart our water and from, you know, hike it in from town, you know, about a mile and a half, cooked out over a fire. You know, the cave was just opposite a little dirt road. And on the other side, it was just the, uh, the a stony beach that went down into the sea. So it was beautiful. And the temperature was constant. Mm. In the cave, I, st- I really st- understood why people lived in caves in the early days. It could be hot. It could be cold outside. The temperature inside the cave was always the same. Wow. Like a nice, cool bottle of wine, what you were. <laughs> <laughs> did, did it give you? A, did did it give you a sense of direction uh, sitting there? Uh, you know, so, so staying in that cave and, and and spending the time there. Did it give you the opportunity to think about what it is you wanted to do when you eventually got back to uh, the U.S.? You know, it's funny. Absolutely not. Really? Absolutely not. Yeah. For one thing, I've never been very good about planning things. Mm. Looking into the future in any sort of way has been a great deficit of mine. Uh, It's really almost an exalted fault of mine that I live in the moment and off pretty much all the time, Uh, which gives you a lot of pleasure in certain things and can lead to trouble in other areas. So no, I didn't. I just lived life then uh, very full. And uh, at the time I, uh, and, and being there, we were there for, we lived there in that cave for two months. Then we planned we were going to go to India and with a bunch of friends, we got too drunk that night and, and the car that was driving us back to town went off a bridge and we all wound up in the hospital and every, my friend was very, almost died. He went home. I'm all broken bones and uh, wound up having to stay in Crete because I couldn't really travel, you know, with a backpack and a broken collarbone and cracked ribs and things. So, wow. So I wound up staying there. And I wound up living there a whole year. And in the spring, I met uh, who was to be my wife. Uh, she came through traveling, and I met her, and we got together there. So it and, was, and she was an well, American, right? Yeah, she had just yeah. finished the Peace Corps oh. and was traveling with some friends, and we met and kind of. And the rest is history, as they say, right? History, yeah. <laughs> well, so you get back to the U.S. and uh, and you got involved with uh, Steve uh, at that point. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, to, you know, I, I got back to the U.S. I still didn't have a direction. You know, I was sort of back in my hometown. I, uh, you know, I didn't know what I, what I was going to do to earn money. I, I, went, I went back to the university because I had lots of life drawing classes, you know, when I was in there. And then I did modeling for life drawing to earn money. Mm. And, uh, and then finally, uh, well, this is sort of my wife and I sort of, went, well, we weren't married yet. Uh, she had gone back to school uh, on the East Coast. I went back to Arizona and then she came traveling, sort of picked me up on the way. And then the, the two of us with another friend hitched up the West Coast all the way from San Diego up to Seattle and then <laughs> took a ferry up to up through Alaska. Anyway, Still, you know, wandering hippies is what we were and wound up finally in Boston. And then that's where I, I learned about a, a studio. You know, I was just working in a frame shop and I think I'd hitched a ride into Harvard Square and somebody asked, what would you really like to do? I said, I always wanted to be an animator. And they went, well, you should see, oh, what was his name? Olson, his name will go right on my head. Um, Steve? No. Someone no, no. who taught 
animation oh, at okay. Harvard. He oh. said, go talk to this guy. So I did. And being young and kind of uh, naive, I went to him and I said, well, I'm not a student here, but can I take your class even though I'm not being a student at Harvard? And after talking to me for a while, and, and he gave me, he said, well, go off and design a little idea for like a, a you know, a 15 second film or something. And I did and brought it back and said, okay, you can sit down in my class and you can make your film. And so, so I had a, I had a class of animation at Harvard. And it was around <laughs> that time. Yeah, I like to tell people, oh, I went to Harvard. Uh, and at that time, hey, that's you, you did go to Harvard. Even if it was for one class, you went I to did. Harvard. <laughs> Eric Martin was his name. Oh, yeah. I, that name sounds familiar. Well, I think he, after that semester, he decided to go west, and I think he wound up having a position at CalArts. Hmm, that's probably where I know him from. Yeah. I yeah. actually finally looked him up years later to talk to him and uh, was, and to sort of thank him for getting me on my feet for animation. Uh, but it was uh, around that same time that I heard about uh, the studio, uh, Lisberger Studios, and uh, got a job with them. So with no training, really, other than other than I got from Disneyland in, in the late 50s as a kid, I went there and there was a place called, uh, oh, what was it called? I don't know, but they showed the art of animation. Mm -hmm. the whole, it was in Tomorrowland. And it showed you all about animation. It was wonderful. It was like I was in heaven when I looked at that thing. And I sent away for an animation kit from Disneyland. I must have been like eight or nine years old. And it had instruction booklets on stretch and squash and timing and drawing the characters. And I, and I built my own little light table and they sent you the materials to do that. And so I basically taught myself everything I could learn up, up with that limited material. And when I started working... I just took that knowledge and learned as I as I worked. Mm. So the small enough studio that basically we everyone did everything. You know, it's 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 amazing in, in talking to all of the artists that we've interviewed so far. Everybody eventually gravitates to the one teacher, that one person that mm. kind of pointed them in a direction. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm hearing, you know, you mentioned Eric Martin as being that person that that kind of set you on your path to animation. Yeah. And, and, it, and it really is wonderful to hear that because the those individuals, those mentors or teachers are so important when you're in your formative years. Yeah, so true. So true. So you come out to Los Angeles, you do Animal Olympics, and then uh, from there, after the studio sort of finishes up on that project, you went over to Disney to work on Tron? <laughs> no, there was a more twisty road than that. My, my, you know, my career in life has gone here and there and here and there. After, after Animal Olympics, uh, then... Then we started developing Tron there at that studio. Oh, okay. It was before it went to Disney. Uh, so Steve had gotten all excited about uh, computer-generated stuff. I mean, this was in its absolute infancy. Yeah, yeah. Really, it was only being used kind of for military training films at that point. And I remember, so he got this idea of doing a movie with a character inside a computer. And we started, after Animal Olympics, we started developing that as a film. And we went around to all the uh, computer-generated places uh, in L.A. and talked to them and looked at, you know, what they did, tried to learn about how computers worked. We had... Uh, who was the guy who came to the studio? Alan Kay. He was one of the early developers 
of um, you know the the personal computer. He he went in and told us about. Ah, we're working on this thing where you know it's going to be you know like a briefcase and. In it, you know, you're going to be able to open it up and be attached to any library in the entire world. You know, you'll be connected to all that info. And we're all going, wow, that sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Because computers at that point were like, you know, gigantic things. And and they were used for military. Yeah, they were used for military purposes and and big corporations and stuff. It wasn't necessarily for art. No, no, no. All these places we went, you know, there were like pictures of tanks and you know, simulated flying, really simplified stuff. And then the, the video games were starting up just at that time, you know, just simple stuff like Pong and Space Invaders, you know. Mm-hmm. So we would go around and look, find every little video game that we could find. Anyway, it was great fun and uh, developed the story and everything. But um, I had promised my wife that we'd go traveling after Animal Olympics. So I stayed and worked on developing the Tron thing for a while. And then we left to go traveling. And mm. we, our three-year-old daughter took off to go traveling around Europe. And uh, and while I was gone, the studio closed down. And then that's when uh, Steve took it to Disney, mm. took it up there. But that by that time, when I came back from traveling, that still hadn't happened. So I wound up um, from staying with friends in Boston. I found a job up in Canada and I went to uh, Nelvana. Oh yeah, Nelvana. Yeah, up in Toronto, Canadian. right? Mm-hmm. And lived yeah. in Toronto for two years and worked on Rock and Rule, another film that hardly has seen its audience. You know, yeah. I did a lot of work and a lot of things that didn't see their audience. <laughs> after and Nelvana was was great. I met a lot of fantastic animators up there. They sure. were terrific people. Uh, and uh, then after that, basically closed down, and I couldn't get my uh, work visa renewed. I was looking for other work, and yeah, who was uh, who was uh, uh, Charlie Bonifacio? I oh yeah, think. and and and, uh, and Chuck Gamage, Chuck Gamage, uh, and Robin Bud. Yeah, there was a whole whole slew of Anne really Marie great. Bodwell. Yeah, and Marie Bodwell. I remember her. Yeah, absolutely. Well, some, some guy named Tom Cito. You might have heard of him. <laughs> you know, we, we, we had Tom on the show a couple months ago. <laughs> That's where I met Tom. I remember yeah. at one point being in a large room animating. He'd come in every morning. Well, on this day in 1648, and he'd tell these stories. <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was the best. I love yeah. historical stories. Awesome. Anyway, so I did that and then uh, then needed to find other work and, and then got hired uh, to work on Little Nemo in Japan. Ah, wow. And uh, Robin Budd, one of the animators from Canada, he also got hired onto that. So we went with our families to Tokyo uh, to work on Little Nemo. I mean, first we worked in L.A. for about nine months and then we went on to Tokyo. So that was a really uh fascinating life experience and a really frustrating work experience. It was a, it was a, it was a movie that really had a hard time finding its feet. It had yeah. Yeah. Going. And we worked there for really worked there for two years and the thing really had not really gotten the green light, you know, put in a lot of work, but met interesting people got kept coming through. Sure. Sure. Like everybody and their kid brother worked on that movie. I, you know, was, I think that was an interesting time because there were people in the animation business that really were circulating around the world almost, you know. People um, were working everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at that time, everyone went to find where the work was. So we were 
you know, we were all gypsies, you know, we were all um, wandering, wandering itinerant workers. Korea and England and, you know, Canada and Tokyo, everywhere. Do you, do you miss that lifestyle or, or did you feel like you got it out of your system at that time? I think, you know, well, you know, I, I had another kid. So, you know, I think, you know, having a family, it, it's not easy toting a family around. And so after Japan, uh, when I came to California and got hired at Disney, then it felt nice to put down some roots, yeah, some roots and, and uh, stop moving every, t- it was like an average of every two years mm. moving. And yeah, that takes a lot of energy. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. So when you got hired at Disney, uh, what was the first project you were working on? Oliver and Company. It was Oliver and Company. Okay. Yeah, because uh, uh, my friend Dave Steffen was at the studio. Yeah. He was from he was from uh, Lisburger, and he was saying, "You've got to come. You know, you've got to come. They they really need a story artist." So I came and interviewed with George Scribner and Don Hahn, and they had lost their story artist. Pete Young had died. Yeah, yeah. Pete had passed away. And in fact, you know, it was funny. I was uh, I had lunch with George today, uh, oh, and, and, and yeah, and and. and Pete came up in the conversation uh, mm-hmm. uh, just because I'm working on a little something with George and, and we were talking about that time period. So that, that's really great. You, you, you started on Oliver and company and worked in story and you primarily stayed in story for the most part. You, I mm-hmm. mean, you, you, you did some early animation on Nemo and rock and rule, but, yeah. but you, you, your track really was uh, as a story artist. Well, I mean, all my previous work, you know, like at Lisburger, it was all, it was story and animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Novana, it was all animation. In in uh, Tokyo on Little Nemo, it was going to be uh, animation, but it mostly turned out to be story. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to Disney, that was the position that was open. So I loved story actually. So I was really happy to work in that capacity. And when I started there, you know, I had Vance Gary on one side of me and Gary Trousdale on the other side, you know, it was so much fun. Oh, Vance is, I mean, what a legendary artist. I mean, story artist he was just a tremendous guy. So, so much just from going into his room and just looking at his boards, Yeah, you know, and, and sometimes I would do that after he had left, you know, at the end of the day, I just go in there and just sit and look at his boards and just learn. Cause I mean, Vance wasn't, I wouldn't call him a teacher. You know, he never, you know, would start telling you how to do things or anything. He was, he was a very quiet guy. A really quiet guy, but with a, a lovely sense of humor, but it was just l- looking at his boards and seeing how he communicated, especially his uses of how using a simple division of space into lights and darks. They were so dramatic and they always told a story, just his use of lights and darks. He was brilliant. George made the comment that both Vance and Pete Young had this ability to uh, to use the the most minimal amount of lines, mm. uh, but the the lines they put down were like it was perfect. It like told the the story for that panel. Yeah, yeah. No, it's you know? that's an art in itself. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to step through every single project because right. I know we have a limited amount of time, but but you did do storyboard work on uh, The Little Mermaid and mm-hmm. Rescuers Down Under and Prince and the Pauper, again, with George directing. Uh, and you then became head of story on uh, Beauty and the Beast. Yep. Yep. 
and uh, and did story work on uh, Aladdin. How did the whole Lion King come about where you transitioned really from story to director? Well, it really happened during uh, Beauty and the Beast um, because I don't, uh, I don't know if it, with that movie, especially I think because, because Howard, you know, even though we didn't know it at the time, was ill. So he mm-hmm. was requesting all of the meetings to take place in New York. So all of we story people would do all of our work on the storyboards, take them all down, and reassemble, you know, fly to New York. The whole story crew would fly to New York, go up to Fishkill, New York, where Howard was, and set up all these boards and pitch them. And then he and Alan would also be playing us the songs that they had been working on. And they would, you know, review our work. And there was a lot of communication. And and just, we worked so closely uh, with them, with Howard and Alan on that movie. Did Uh, Did you learn a lot from Howard? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, so much. And, and, you know, from, from your standpoint, what, what do you think his strengths really were? I mean, he was a great lyricist, obviously, but he, he was yeah. a great storyteller, wasn't he? Well, that was one of the things, too, is that and in, in his songwriting, it always was storytelling, you know, as funny and amusing as, as the lyrics could be there. It was still furthering the story. His songs rarely were about, let's stop the movie now and just get on our tap shoes and do something. You know what I mean? It was, it always had a theme or, or a conflict of characters or whatever that was moving the story forward. Um, it was brilliant in that way. And it was his understanding of, of Broadway musicals and their structure. And he saw how much, how related uh, animated films and Broadway musicals, how related the two forms were. Uh, he did. He delivered a lecture fairly early on to the, in the studio, which was brilliant about that. And uh, you know, talking about a character's "I want" song, talking about you know, at what point in the film uh, through conflict, you know, there's this sort of song, and then there's you know, everything was always about moving a story forward. And um, you know, he was he was amazing to work with. Yeah, I mean, that was a great loss, I thought. Uh, oh, I think oh. everybody felt, you know, because you just imagine what he could have accomplished uh, had he not passed away when he did. I know. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, just to look on the bright side of it, it was, boy, did this guy work hard in those last few years. I mean, yeah. think about when he started working in uh, on a Little Mermaid, which while well, I was working on, on, on Oliver and Company, I was hearing Alan and Howard like a room or two over playing on the piano and working up these songs. And I was thinking, Oh my God, I have to work on this movie. This is fantastic. <laughs> but you know, so they were doing that in the late eighties. Right. Uh, yeah. And, he, and then by, when did he die? By 91 was it? I mean, he just had a really short time, like four years, possibly five years. And in that time he did little mermaid he did Beauty and the Beast. He did Aladdin. Yeah. Um, I don't know. They were, those were huge accomplishments. Huge accomplishments. Yeah. And so he did use his his short time. So so as had a story. Uh, when did when did the Lion King sort of uh, start to seep in? Well, one of the things that was doing it to me was like a, some of the people that I was working with kept kept saying to me, "You know, you should direct." People were saying that to me. I always. Sure. Thought, 
uh, boy, directors never get to go home. I'm not sure I ever want to be a director, you know. And, and especially at Disney, because there's the development directors and then yeah. there's the directors, right? So, you know, you, you, you're always hesitant to be the first director on a show. That's true. That's true. Uh, you know, I, I think I let those people's opinions creep into my head. And so I remember one time, uh, I don't know what, it was, some sort of a review board or something. And I said to Peter Schneider, well, you know, I've been thinking, you know, it might be interesting to direct if, you know, ever would think of something that I could do and that, you know, he said, okay, I'll think about that. So I put the, I put the, whatever. The, the bug I, in his ear. You put, you, you put the bug in his ear. No. And then basically while I was working on Aladdin, I got a call from Jeffrey saying he wanted me to uh, team up with George on uh, uh, King of the Jungle. It was called. That right. Time. That was the original title. Yeah. Yeah. Which I had worked with George a little bit with George and Linda Wolverton when they were first developing the idea and, uh, and that, but got off of it to go help it uh, on, on Aladdin because they were, it was at that point in production where they were having some major rewrites and trying to get and tearing sequences down and redoing yeah, stuff. Yeah. Like, like, like every, goes, every movie, every, every movie goes through it. Yeah. yeah. So I went off and, you know, worked with them on that. And it was after that. So I, I don't know, Jeffrey was a hard person to argue against. I was, uh, <laughs> Because I had been thinking about, an, I had been working on another idea for a film. I was hoping, you know, maybe to get going, but you went, no, do this, do this now. So there I was. Yeah, it was always do this one now. We'll talk about your idea later. That's exactly. <laughs> it. Right, 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 right. You know that you can do later, but this, you yeah. <laughs> So, so you start, you start working on the Lion King, uh, and, uh, obviously, uh, there, there's some changes that, that happen on that project and Rob Minkoff comes on to, to co-direct with you and George moved right. on to some other projects. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and you, you got through that film. I mean, did you, that, that was a film, as I recall, uh, at the studio that, uh, you know, a lot of animators were trying to bypass to get onto Pocahontas. I mean, I'm sure you, you remember that. I do, because I remember how difficult it was to try to amass a crew. Yeah. Uh, and, and Jeffrey had said, you know, he knew Pocahontas and he knew that was going to be a great story. And he was all for it. He said, Lion King, I'm not too sure, you know, if you, you know, you've heard all those stories, you know, sure. You guys can, you know, make 50, what was it? 50 million at the box office. Well, I'll get down on my knees for you, but I'm not sure where this is, you know, so he wasn't really sure about it, uh, but he was in thick with Pocahontas. So everybody was jumping on the Pocahontas bandwagon and, and Glenn went on that. And of course, Glenn, you know, that uh, it's, you throw that great weight of talent into into the gravity pool, and all the other everyone else is yeah in with it, you know. So so yeah, um, it was it wasn't easy uh, getting people together, but we had a fantastic crew on Lion King actually, and and some people who got their first chances, you know, to lead characters like yeah. Uh, Mike Surrey and Tony Bancroft, or and and, and uh, Alan Woodbury, right? Alan Woodbury for Zazu, and yeah, yeah, no, we had a great crew. I mean, Ruben Aquino was super solid. Yeah, here, uh, doing Simba and Tony Fucilli doing Mufasa and and uh, and James Baxter doing Rafiki. I mean, sure, is stunning, and of course Andreas doing Scar. 
with so we have not fabulous. a lightweight team at all. So. No, 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 not at all, not at all. But but it just goes to show you though when you know like like sometimes these films as they're developing, people are like, oh my gosh, I don't know how this film will do. And you know, yeah. you're you're conveying the story of Jeffrey saying, well, if it made this much, I'd really be thrilled, you know. And here it is, you know, <laughs> we're we're you know. <laughs> you know, a quarter century later plus. And, uh, and that film is the highest grossing traditionally animated film of all time. And who would have thought, right? Yeah. When you you were in production. And you can't know these things while you're doing them. As a matter of fact, the process is, is often so scary because you, you just have no idea if if this is going to be any good. As a matter of fact, I remember it was pretty imposing because we had all these all these movies before us that were huge, you know, Little Mermaid and and then Beauty and the, the Beast and Aladdin and Aladdin, you know, it was like boom, 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 going up this ladder of success, and it was like, wow, uh, we're going to be lucky if we can pull this thing off. And so you're always just hoping for the best, you know, you you want to do your best, but yeah, and yeah, it was a hard start. It was a hard start, definitely. And, and, and you know, it was a challenging picture too because it was most of the characters are quadrupeds. Yeah. You know, and and, so. and that is more challenging for animators uh, to get those walks and runs done properly. That's right. That's right. I mean, I was just thinking there were really only three that could walk on two legs. That was <laughs> Zazu, who mostly flew, right. and uh, Rafiki and Timon. Yeah. Everyone, everyone else was a quadruped. And animal movement is takes a lot of study. Uh pull it off and, and if you don't get it right people notice it's not right mm-hmm. you know i mean everyone has been brought up on if not being around animals watching all the nature films and everything we are yeah. we've taken that all in to our subconscious mm-hmm. and, and feel when it's right yeah. it is. mutual mutual of omaha's animal kingdom remember sure i mean those were great shows roll them it is now 22 minutes before the hour. I'm over 50 years old, and every time Disney comes out with a new animated movie, I rush off to see it. And all this week, we're going to be looking at the magic that has created the new Disney animated feature. It is called The Lion King. And for the last three years, the studio has kept its pencils and brushes working hard, making him roar. If you like The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, well, you ain't seen nothing yet. So you get that with Lion King. It's a huge success. Uh, and did you, I, I'm curious if right after Lion King, you started developing a new project or did you start to write the book for the Broadway version of Lion King? Which came first? Uh, the next film. Okay. After I finished Lion King, um, Tom Schumacher, Schumacher, Tom Schumacher had me into his office and uh, said, well, you know, thinking about next things for you. Uh, and he said they were interested in maybe trying to set something in uh, a culture south of the border, in one of the, either the Central or South America cultures. And on, on a board, he had three images. Uh, and one was uh, something from the Aztec culture. One was something from the Mayan culture. And the other one was from the Incan culture. And the Incan photograph that they had up there was of Machu Picchu. Mm-hmm. And with a close-up of some of the stonework, you know, that amazing stonework that's all cut to fit all these shapes of stones that intricately fit together. And this city that's high above the clouds with the clouds drifting through. And I just thought, 
wow, that is such an intriguing romantic image. I'd love to develop something that has to do with that culture. Also, it was interesting because around that time, I don't know why, there seemed to be a lot of roving bands of, of uh, musicians playing Incan music, you know, the Peruvian music. I remember down on Venice Beach or, or huh. Monica, I run into them. And it was a music that I have been familiar with. And it, it has this infectious rhythm, you know, these sort of hippity skippity rhythms, you know, and... Uh, the pan pipes and all of that. I found that, that music really exciting. And I thought, ooh, it'd be fantastic to do a movie and weave the sound of that kind of music in to this setting, you know, these cities in the sky kind of, you know. Yeah, yeah. So then I just started researching the culture and, uh, you know, looking up the images and trying to get an idea for uh, a story to support it. And, and you came up with uh, what, what you ultimately titled Kingdom of the Sun. Right, right. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that story? Because I, I think our audience is really unaware of um, uh, this film. And, and it's something I just have these vivid memories of seeing the development art hanging on boards in the building. Uh, and, and I just thought how lush and beautiful it looked. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, you and I, when we were talking about booking you on as a guest, you know, I, we, we talked briefly about it. And I, I'd love for you to just describe the story, if you would, to the audience. Sure. Well, um, I mean, it was going to, going to be a fairly simple story. Although, uh, I mean, I kind of was, was stealing from, there, there's a, uh, a book and a movie called, uh, okay. Well, it'll come, it'll come to you. It'll come. It's, it's not Prince of the Pauper, which would, people are always quoting that one, but this one, crap. Now I can't remember the title of it. Anyway, it's basically about a guy whose cousin is a, is a prince who's kind of a dissolute character and he meets him by accident in a tavern. Uh, and this guy, they see they have a likeness to each other and the prince winds up getting kidnapped and uh, the cousin has to fill in, fill in for him. And then there's a, a love interest of a princess and the two of them actually fall in love. She, she's being forced into this marriage, you know, politically and doesn't really like the prince. But then when she meets him and he seems different, they've actually fallen in love. So that was the story I was stealing from. Uh, and using that template, I thought, all right, well, I'll make uh, one the main character a llama herder because the llama is such a symbol of, you know, of those people and of the Peruvian Andes and all that. So, and then, and then that means, you know, he could be a sympathetic character. He has this way with animals and the animals, you know, respond to him. And so he's not like the lowest of the low, right? And he winds up through circumstances going to the capital city. And uh, then there's an exchange that happens, you know, and uh, the arrogant prince falls afoul of, I had a, a, a high priestess who's something of a sorceress and had cast uh, Eartha Kitt to play her. And yeah. so this, this high priestess has a, a beef against she here the whole culture is sort of the worship of the sun right the sun is the is the great god and yet she has a beef with the sun because he just ages her and wrinkles her and she wishes to have her beauty back and she's going to make a deal with this bottled up uh not exactly a god it's kind of a force 
an ancient force of uh, chaos, right, which uh -huh. ruled before the world came into being. And so for that, I invented also, so she's going to let loose this darkness and take over the world. So that's simple little, that's simple little plot there. But before that, so in order to support that, I did uh, uh, sort of a, a myth that set the whole movie going. And it told the, the story of when the earth was young and, and the universe was chaos and Viracocha, the early earliest man sort of slash God saw, you know, it was all this chaos and he took a rope and he threw it to a distant star and he pulled the star into the, into towards the earth. And that star was Inti, the sun God, and that brought order. And then the, the darkness was trapped under the earth and then, crops grew and it was really beautiful. And I had gotten Sting to do the songs and he did this beautiful creation myth story, uh, song. And um, uh, of course here, I'm gonna be forgetting everybody's name. Marcel, he's a, uh, a Hungarian artist who did, um, oh dear, anyway. It's not terrible. Old age is a terrible thing. Lost <laughs> you your memory of names in the moment. Um, anyway, came and did these beautiful uh, visuals of you know the planet sort of coming alive. Yeah, all to this music. So we had a we had mythology. We have a love story where you know Pacha the Malama herder falls in love with the princess. We have the the wicked sorceress you know trying discovering his secret and trying to pull them apart and all this sort of thing and and save the, the prince who's been turned into a llama from being killed. And that's the sort of thing. So it, it was going to have romance, it was going to have adventure, it was going to have magic and, and mythology and kind of celebrate the culture of the Incas because sure. we, we did manage a trip down to Peru and, and traveled and, and looked at, went to Machu Picchu and looked at the amazing stonework and, and all the beautiful textiles, the colors and the designs were so exciting and to, work those into the, the fabric of the film was going to be exciting. And, and people were doing beautiful, beautiful designs. And, and you know, that, 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 the fact that you went on the research trip, I mean, I, I, I can't emphasize enough how important those types of trips have been mm. and, and are for making animated films that are set in these types of uh, locations. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I know on Lion King, you all went to Africa, uh, uh to do the safari once or twice. I, you went twice, didn't you? To, to no, Africa we just went once. once. It was once. A, a three week trip, uh, around Kenya and, and visiting various sites and yeah. doing it mostly in a, you know, in a, in a Range Rover with, you know, the, with no roof. So you could, yeah. you could be out there among all the animals watching lionesses hunting zebras and cheetahs and their young hunting and, getting a really up close view of all the animals and the landscapes. We brought back so much material from and inspiration from Africa, not to yeah. mention the, uh, some of the language, you know, the Swahili, some of that, sure. some of the phrases uh, I learned there became part of the movie. You know, yeah. Una Matata. Oh, yeah. Una Matata. You know, uh, so it was really invaluable, but I think for the, for the productions, you know, that go to the place there is a, it's, it's beyond what you can just pick up from a book. There's like a spirit of a place. There's a feeling of when you're in the landscapes. It's the soul, the soul of it. Yeah. 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 It, really, uh, it animates it in a, you know, in a very deep way. I think everyone is always quite influenced by their, 
And and you so you had the same experience, obviously, going to Machu Picchu and to Peru and uh, all of that. And and you you guys brought back tons and tons of uh, Mm -hmm. uh, not only artwork and drawings done on the spot, but but photographic reference. Oh, yeah. 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 It was uh, quite an exciting trip. And it was, you know, beautiful stuff that was being developed for the film. And then then the film didn't happen. You know, then uh, execs decided they didn't want to do that, you know. Was it that they wanted to do something more cartoony and uh, well, you com- know, comedy? Or what, what was their thinking? Well, what was interesting is also during the time I'm working on this movie, uh, they started developing uh, The Lion King for the stage. Yeah. Early on. So also while I'm developing Kingdom of the Sun, uh, Julie Taymor started developing uh, the Lion King for the stage. And she came in and presented some of her new ideas for stuff she wanted to do to enlarge the Lion King. And uh, uh, Don Hahn and Peter and, and uh, Tom suggested that Irene and I, Irene Mecki and I, Irene Mecki, who was a writer on the movie, yeah. Lion King, work with Julie in terms of developing the story. So we were going to spend a week with her and, and we would, you know, uh, since we were so familiar with the movie. And so we did, we spent a, a very productive week, you know, structuring the story, opening it up in places. And at the, at the end of that time, she said that uh, she had been thinking she was going to get a, a writer to do the show. She said, but, but Irene and I could just jump into character at a moment's notice. We had these characters living in our heads. Yeah. Why don't you guys write it? We went, okay. So while working on Kingdom of the Sun, Irene and I were also writing uh, the book for the musical um, the Lion King. So that was a busy time. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. I'm curious. I'm, I'm curious to ask you. What was your initial reaction when 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 Tom and and Peter said, "Hey, we're going to make the Lion King a stage production." Well, I remember it was actually a, a bunch of us key people who worked on Lion King uh, were invited to a lunch with uh, Michael Eisner, and during this lunch, the last. Thing he dropped on us was uh, uh, was well, you know, The Lion King has been so successful as a film. I mean, it had only been out for I don't know, like a month or two, but it was, you know, doing it was great. a hit. We everybody knew it was a hit. <laughs> and he said, you know, and uh, Beauty and the Beast has done a great great business on Broadway. I think we we really should turn The Lion King into a Broadway musical. Now he said, what do you all think about it? Well, every person. <laughs> Every individual around that table all said, we think it's a terrible idea. We think it's a terrible idea, Michael. We had joked while we were working on the movie, well, they'll never make this into a musical because all we could picture were people prancing about the stage dressed in fuzzy costumes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, absolutely. Ca- like PJs. It was just like, mm, it just seemed like it was going to be terrible. And and when we all expressed our opinion that it would not translate well to stage, then Michael said, hmm, well, I want to do it anyway. <laughs> he asked us all our opinion. We all said no. And he said, we're going to do it anyway. And, and then he, he set Tom off to find somebody to head it up. And luckily, Tom was familiar with Julie Taymor and her really creative, you know, idiosyncratic way of interpreting things. And uh, he asked her to do it. And she brought this whole sense of the idea of characters wearing masks on the top of their heads, the characters, the actors' faces being visible, 
really reinterpreting reinterpreting it through much more creative lens than uh, you know zipping people up into furry costumes. So uh, I mean, my, Michael Michael had some Michael had some crazy ideas over the years, but but yeah. but he also had a lot of really good ideas. Yeah, well, I think his instinct was right there. Yeah, because I, I I've seen the play a new uh, you know a number of times on Broadway, and I have to tell you, I was skeptical. I was one of those people like, really, they're going to do line? And when I went to see it, I thought, my gosh, this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's beautiful, and it's certainly been seen by a lot of people. And and uh, I remember the very first the first night uh, we were doing uh, tech and all in. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania, not Pennsylvania, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And we had our first um, preview night, right? Where we had a, did it in front of a live audience. Yeah. And when sitting in a theater full of people for the first time and the show started and Rafiki sings the chant. And then when the animals started walking down the aisles, the excitement in the theater was so intense. It was so intense. It was a life-changing moment. I mean, it, brought you to tears. Uh, people were so thrilled and so excited about that. And the whole circle of life number culminating up on the stage, um, you know, with a, it's, it's ooh, breathtaking. It's, it's breathtaking. breathtaking. You know, it's beautiful and it's artistic and original and, and it carried the spirit of the film and, and, uh, and the spirit of the music, you know, so it was so exciting. And I think people, still, you know, have that response to it. And, uh, it's, yeah. You, you know, Tom told me once that the Lion King on Broadway and all of the traveling shows around the world yeah. has grossed more than all the star Wars movies put together. <laughs> that's just, crazy. Just, just to put it in context. Yeah. That, that's that's crazy. crazy, isn't it? Yeah, really. Yeah. And, and and it's still going strong. It's still selling out shows. That's the amazing thing about it, right? Yeah, it is. It's amazing. It's My gosh. So I mean, it isn't. I mean, it's taken a year off, a year and a half off. There sure. has been no production, you know. Sure, sure. Else. Theaters closed all over the world. And, uh, but, but you know what? It'll, it'll, it'll still come back. In September. In yeah, September, it, they're working to open it up. Yeah. And also in, uh, in the West End in London. And I yeah. think. I think Australia. So anyway, it'll be lovely to, to have it get back on. Irene just sent me a, a little clip uh, of the West End crew uh, singing Circle of Life. They, yeah. I guess it was, uh, you know, kind of a table read kind of thing. And the, and the chorus was all in the, in the room and they did it. And it was just lovely to see. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was going to say they're in rehearsals. And, you know, that stuff brings a tear to your eye because, first of all, I mean, you're involved in all these stories and story is king. I mean, I, I can I can go down the list of all the, the movies you're involved in, you know, Beauty and Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, and they all tug at your heartstrings at various places. And, you know, especially Lion King, you know, you, you suffer a loss of you know, that story is just kind of, you know, it's evergreen. That story happens to so many people losing a, a loved one, your dad. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen that, especially in the parks when, when they play Mickey's Philharmagic, you know, those songs make people happy. And anytime you see that, that film and, uh, or even the Broadway play and you see Mufasa and all of a sudden people are like getting teary eyed, you know, this mm -hmm. is what happens, you know? So it's a, it's a great testament to the story. It's, it's lovely that it moves people. 
like that. I mean, it's been quite an experience. You know, uh, Irene and I have gone around the world with that show, you know, helping it, you know, going to see how it's playing, how the translations are working and meeting the casts all over the world um, is, is so exciting for one, you know, this, the energy and the spirit that all the, the singers and the dancers and the performers bring to it. But then also knowing that so many people around the world have seen it. It's just, a, it's a crazy thing. It's, it's a, kind of a lovely communal thing in a way. It kind of connects you with people, which is just a, a lovely thing. Well, it is. A, I mean, it's a wonderful story that does transcend uh, cultures and language. And I, I mean, it resonates all around the world. Yeah, yeah. Which is beautiful. So uh, just to step back for a second, you started you started writing on uh, the book, as they call it, the adaption for the Broadway play. Um, and uh, Kingdom of the Sun, they just didn't want to go the direction. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I was going to the say. The tone of it. I, at, at that time, for one thing, uh, I think Peter... Schneider and, and Tom Schumacher were just in seventh heaven getting to work on the stage again. Yeah. Because you know, they were very involved with getting Lion King up on its feet, you know, and they were super excited being back, you know, on stage. So, I mean, that had their enthusiasm. And they, so they, a, a lot of their attention, you know, was away from the film when it was being developed. Yeah. Uh, and in the meantime, there was also, there was some somebody, I can't remember which paper it was. It might have been the New York Times. Somebody wrote an article about how all Disney movies all follow the same formula. Mm. And they did this graph and they broke all the movies down and tried to make them all fit this one pattern, which I felt was like really unfair. But I remember uh, it really unnerved Peter at mm. the time. And I think at that point, you know, he, after that article, he looked at Kingdom of the Sun and, and felt like, no, it's, it's, it's hitting all those buttons that we've hit before, you know, the uh, the romance, the adventure, the villain, the, the this and that. And uh, he kept, like for one, he, first he had me take out the myth, you know, he said, felt like take that out. And, get, and then it just started being, after a while, it was a little bit like the scene of Cinderella's dress getting torn off piece by piece. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is a, that, that, that's a great metaphor to use, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so basically then, uh, they decided to not go with it, you know, and uh, there were some comedic elements that uh, had been come up with by, I'm, I'm so bad with names. I'm going to remember. That's all right. Anyway, uh, by some guys in the story, Chris, Chris, anyway. Uh, and they went, well, let's go more in that direction. And then at one point uh, they had the two productions because I, everything was going to be thrown out. Sting had done like five or six songs that no longer, no longer fit, through. right? Yeah, no, they wouldn't fit anymore. So they had done like half the songs. And I think Tom had a, like a bad dream or a, a something one time hit him was like, my God, what are we doing? Throwing all this out. So then they did one last time and they had me go back in with story artists to revamp the movie. And then they had Chris and, uh, oh yeah. And Mark Dindle try a more comedic approach and, Basically, so they sort of had us be competing teams, which is kind of awful. Uh, and then we pitched our films and they went with the comedic, with the comedy. Okay. So there we went. 
and, and, and you and you seemed pretty comfortable with. Uh, I, I I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my my impression was you were like, mm, that's not the movie I want to make, and yeah. I'm going to go do something different. Yeah. Yeah. And it was hard to see the whole thing go away. Definitely. Yeah. No. And and again, as I said earlier, you know, uh, that early visual development artwork was really spectacular on it. Uh, And and I know after you got off that project, you know, and you did the book for the the Lion King show on Broadway, you you did additional story supervision for Lilo and Stitch and you you worked on as a story artist on a few other projects. But you got to direct again on a beautiful little film called The Little Match Girl. Yes. You want to talk talk a little bit about that and how that came about? I love that little film. Well, it was so cool because... I mean, the story also was sort of funny because it was basically Roy Disney's little secret project that we were doing, right? Because I think he wanted to do a new a new Fantasia. We did Fantasia 2000. Correct. But he was very proud of it. But when Michael Eisner was approached about doing another Fantasia, he went, no, it wasn't enough of a success. So he didn't want to do it. But Roy really wanted to do one. <laughs> So then there was this kind of secret project going on and people would be doing uh, musical, you know, and some animated segments or what do you call it? Little features. Yeah, they were, they were, they were segments. They were segments for a Fantasia film. Yeah. yeah. To uh, music. And the, the concept was doing music from around the world. Yeah. So it could involve different cultures and that sort of thing. I thought the idea was wonderful. Yeah, it was. A, we, we were referring to it as Fantasia World, and just uh, just so the audience knows, you and I worked on that. I, I worked for you on on the Little Match Girl. I I thoroughly enjoyed working on that project because it it, it was a challenge. It was wanting to make it sort of a moving painting that had texture yeah. to it, and and, and there, were, there were some interesting things that we did on that project. But mm. but that was your baby. You, you selected the piece of music and you structured the story around it. Yeah. Well, I actually, it was Don Hahn who came to me mm-hmm. uh, and said, would you like to do a little match girl? And it had always been uh, a story that I found very moving, you know, and I used to read it to my kids and it's a, it's a Hans Christian Anderson, Hans Christian uh, Anderson again, yeah. you know, and, but I could barely get to the end of the story reading it to my kids without, you know, having tears rolling down my cheek. Yeah. Anyway, I knew it was a, an emotional story and I would, I jumped at the chance to do it. We actually started off on a different piece of music, um, Claire de Lune, I think it was. And I was storyboarding to that. And uh, at one point, Roy Disney came in and, you know, I pitched him the board with that music and he went, you know what? I've always hated that piece of music. <laughs> it wasn't the Debussy Roy, Roy was always honest. He was always honest. He, 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 never, he never held back. He just told you what he thought. I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, we tried to do, trying to be done also in the studio in the 40s. It was terrible, you know. So we went, oh, okay. Yeah. So we found another fair. piece of music, which was the piece by Borodine, mm-hmm. which honestly was better. It yeah. had way more a, a richer emotional uh content and more diversity to it. It was, I loved it. So set about reboarding to that and uh, got that put together. And, and uh, Hans Bacher was, was doing these lovely sort of monochromatic things. Now I, I had said, I thought the concept could be that, you know, with the girl in the snow, everything would be very cool colors. And then when her visions 
in the, the glow of the matchsticks came about. Then we then we enter into another uh, a palette of warm colors and the, those, the warmer world. Yeah, and then when the match would go out, we'd go back to this very blue cold world. And he did all these lovely uh, watercolor and and ink wash drawings of of the little girl, and I loved the way it looked. I loved that dissolving ink edge, you know, the line around things, the, the blurriness. And I thought, oh, let's try to get that look in the film, you know, so it's not hard color coming up against hard outlines. So we worked very hard on that. And uh, yeah, I was really pleased with the with the result. And, 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 and the, the one thing I do remember from the production was I think we had three or four different endings that we created. Oh God. Well, that was when that was <laughs> well, the story of our plan is we had finished it. We yes. finished it. And then Michael Eisner wanted to review what everything was being done in the studio. So all of a sudden the cat's out of the bag. Oh, by the way, on our spare time and using, you know, crews that are on downtime, we've made these musical pieces. And when he saw the little match girl and saw that she died at the end. Yeah. When, Oh, no, 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 no. That's too morbid. That's too, you know, you can't have it like that. So we had to, you know, I had to go back in and start coming up with other backgrounds. By that time, actually, I was no longer at Disney. If you remember. Yeah, that's I right. You moved to Sony. You went on to Sony Pictures to do um, open season and uh, and you did some work on Surf's Up, but you 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 co-directed or you directed Surf's Up, right? Or, I mean, no, no open, open season. Open season. Open season I directed. Yeah, yeah. right, right. With, with Jill Colton and Tony Stocky. Anyway, so while I'm working at Sony, I'm also working, I'm going back and forth to Disney. Uh, that's wow. right. Coming up with different different endings to this to this film. Wow. And you know, trying to tone down the whole death thing. Yeah. And I remember we finally had this one version, which I was eh, it's sort of okay if I have to. And I remember they they took it as far as submitting it to uh, the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. Somebody, before it even went in, wrote back a letter. Oh, I was, I loved this movie. You know, I love this film. And I'm so happy she doesn't die at the end. And I was like, oh, when, when Don Hahn read me that letter, I went, Don, that's terrible. It destroys the whole thing. <laughs> it's not supposed to communicate this. This is terrible. And uh, basically Don said, okay, Let's wait on this because he sort of knew what was in the works. Yeah. And basically what happened was uh, Michael Eisner left Disney. He, he, well, he, he, was, he lost, Disney. he lost the battle with Roy E. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> that's, anyway, that's the story so, I want to so tell. <laughs> Michael, yeah. Okay. So Michael left and then, we just put back the ending with the first ending I had. Yes. Except by then, I think we had lost it in the cap system or something. We had to do it no, over. Again. No, 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 no. We, 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 we knew where it was. We just had to recomposite the whole thing. We had to put it back together the way it was. And I remember, I think I redesigned the girl with the snow on her, mm -hmm. I think. And we changed it just, just a little bit, but we were, you know, just, just, tweaking it to make it read better. And yeah. so I was so, that so rarely happens that you get to then go back and put your original yeah. ending in. And then uh, 
Well, yeah, but you know something, we, 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 we did have those opportunities like on the Lion King for the 10th anniversary. Uh, they added in that sequence, uh, yeah. news from the underground. And we did the same thing for a sequence in Pocahontas and a, yeah. and a sequence in uh, the human again sequence in uh, Beauty and the Beast, you know. And, and when you do go in to do those types of things uh, that, you know, look, they were doing it because they, they could add new material and sell the DVD or whatever yeah. as a new DVD. But, but it also gave the filmmakers the opportunity to fix those things they always wanted to fix. Yeah. You know, yeah. that they weren't hundred percent happy with. That's true. That's true. That, that doesn't always happen though. I have to say a lot of times yeah. finish your movie and that's it. That's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as they say, you, you was it? Um, movies are never finished. You, you just run out of time. Well, or, or, or the, the other phrase is uh, you, you never finish a movie. You just release it. but um you know roger uh what are you doing now uh are you you're not retired because i when i whenever i talk to my artist friends they're not retired they they they've shifted gears and they're doing something i know you're doing a lot of painting now i see a lot of your beautiful uh uh pen and ink and and watercolor uh paintings uh that you post uh what what, what's been keeping you busy and what's exciting you now yeah well i've got a big thing going actually the thing with the drawings and the paintings is uh uh with tina price and uh the ctn the creative talent network yeah when her gallery reopens it's it'll be a show of my paintings so um Fantastic. That's exciting. It's the first show I've ever had of my artwork. Isn't that funny? Well, I, I think it's fantastic. I look forward to coming and seeing that show yeah, because I love your painting style. Thanks. Anyway, so that's been a fun thing. That's that's something we, you know that I've done where I don't have to please anybody. You know what I mean? That's one of those you, you, you please yourself. I just please myself and just have fun doing it. Yeah, and well, you don't you don't have to hand it in for notes. That's right. No, no. <laughs> I give myself plenty of notes, but I, I try to stay loose and free. And, you know, if it's done, it's done. I don't spend too long on them. Well, I, I think they're beautiful paintings and, uh, and I hope you continue to do a lot more of them. Thanks. But the big project has been uh, a musical for the stage. Ever since working on Lion King, I thought, oh, it would be just so cool. I, I found it such exciting work that I, I thought I'd love to... Uh, you know, be, be in it on from the scratch and write something from scratch for it. So I've been working on uh, a musical uh, and uh, got a composer and we have been working together on this and have written like 24 songs and wow. uh, I've written the scripts for it, you know, or at least the first pass of the book because uh, that's kind of the stage we're in right now is uh, we've done a first pass and now we really need to uh, start getting it up you know, with people and, and seeing how it plays so that we can bring it into its, uh, its final shape. Wow. That's, so, that's exciting. There was a, Very exciting. A, a, a pause with the whole COVID thing because you couldn't put people together in a room. So, uh, yeah, it definitely slowed down there for a while, but no, I find that very exciting and, uh, uh, definitely, uh, definitely excited about it. Well, I'm I'm excited to hear more details on that when when it's appropriate to to talk about it further. Yeah, um, well, uh, I'd love to just start start spilling all the beans on it, and I don't know how much to talk about it at this stage. 
Well, I, I'm not going to press you because I, my, I normally I would say, Roger, just between you, me, and our yeah. listening audience. And all those people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but soon, I hope very soon. I'd love to, you know, really put it all out there. It's, well, it's very exciting and uh, I'm having a great time working on it. Well, fantastic, Roger. I, I have to say, it's been such a pleasure having you on the Skull Rock podcast and oh. talking with you and hearing about the behind the scenes of uh, Kingdom of the Sun, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I was working on other projects at the studio, but I, you know, you walk down the hall and you see these beautiful boards and, mm-hmm. you know, for all these various projects and, you know, and just to hear from from your point of view and, and your, you know, uh, recollections, what, you know, what what the story was and everything. I think it was very exciting and insightful, and I appreciate your time telling us that. Thanks, Dave. No, it's been good talking to you. I do have a question before you leave us, Roger. Sure. A couple of things. First of all, uh, it's great that little match girl and people should know and and, and find it you know, on the Disney Plus, but uh, was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Short, which is awesome. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's great that you guys you know can share that, but um, curious because I'm also a big Sting fan. Um, mm. Is there any possibility or maybe a, a chance that maybe we fans could hear some of that music at some point? I think it would be great if they could. I know, I think a couple of songs, maybe one or two, uh, went on to the, the soundtrack album of uh, Emperor's New Groove. Mm-hmm. As like a bon- bonus, uh, a bonus track. It was a bonus they track. Yeah, it didn't relate to anything story-wise, uh, you know, of, of that. Uh, but I think they included it. But there were several songs, and, and we recorded, there were recorded versions where Sting was just singing them. And then there were recorded versions when we had... Uh, the actors or the singers that were going to sing for the actors recording them. Oh, like a scratch vocal, right? No, like a like a final vocal. Oh, well, from, like, like, vocal? like the like the, oh. the the singing voice for an actor. Oh, the yeah. singing voice for the. I got it. Okay, great, yeah. great. Which would have been used, you know, as the final song track. You wow. Know? Okay. So I think it would be lovely to be able, you know, to be able to put those out and have people hear them. Wow. Uh, well, Disney, well you know, I, I, I'm going to say we're, we're going to have to ask Chris Montan because he's coming up in a couple of weeks as a guest on our show. Oh, good. So I'll, I'll put that to him and find out if there's a, if it's feasible. You know, yeah. the, the, these things, you know, there could be all kinds of legal things involved oh, where, true. you know, but how was it working with Sting? Did you enjoy that experience? Yeah, no, it was really interesting. I mean, he, uh, it was, it was funny because I, he doesn't usually do projects where uh, he's not the one in control of it in a way. Do you know what I mean? Sure. We would listen to him in terms of music and everything. But if I, you know, if I questioned a lyric or something, because I felt maybe it wasn't appropriate story-wise, you know, he definitely put up a fight. So (laughs) I don't think he's too used to people wanting to change his lyrics on him, but no, it was really good. And it was, it was fun. I mean, watching, watching him come up with this stuff and listening to him record and uh, the idea of, you know, the different kind of orchestrations and the, and the different instruments used. I I got one point when we were recording uh, a scratch track, um, I got to go in and and sing backup with him. That was fun, you know. You've got to have a recording of that laying around somewhere. There is a recording of it somewhere. God, I don't know where it is. (laughs) 
somewhere. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Aljon, Aljon, any other questions? No, you know, I mean, I think this is great. You know, I, you know, we could, we could spend an entire, another entire show talking to you and we will down the road. So I'm sure we'll have more questions for you at that point and talking about your future projects. But uh, this has been great learning about the ins and outs and all those projects. And, and we can't wait to have you back on the show. Thanks, Aljon. It would be a pleasure. Well, <laughs> Roger, as I've said to all of our guests, we can never possibly cover one person's career in an hour, hour and 15 minutes. We, so we will have you back at a future date to talk about maybe the musical you're working on and, and pepper you with other questions and drill into some of the other projects a little bit more fully. Cool. All right. So thank you so much for being on the Skull Rock podcast, Roger. All right. Good talking with you, Dave. You too, Al John. some real user power your weekly immersion into all things disney behind the scenes i love i love those tidbits dave you know there's some really great stories there i mean i love the fact that he lived in a cave uh i mean that that's just amazing isn't it i mean you know he 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 kind of had that like uh hippie lifestyle back in the early 70s and you know back when you could hitchhike around europe or the united states and feel safe unbelievable i i couldn't believe it very bohemian and what what life uh he had to live but uh hey if you're gonna live in a cave anywhere you might as well live in the mediterranean that's what i say I hear, you know, the, I, I hear the I fish gotta tell you, I, I gotta <laughs> tell you, Al John. You know, Roger is really just one nice guy, a yeah. really talented artist, and just a really, really nice person. Absolutely, I, enjoy, I really enjoyed talking with him. Well, I can't wait to have him back for a future Skull Rock podcast, Dave. And, Ab- absolutely. And speaking of future podcasts, uh, did you want to maybe give a little bit of a tease to our fans out there? Well, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, next week we've got uh, in the house, we've got Alan Coates and Tony Baxter. Uh, and we're going to be talking about Claude Coates. And of course, my new book, Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer, The Making of Disneyland, uh, from Toad Hall to the Haunted Mansion and beyond. And so if you've got questions for Alan and Tony, you should email us. Uh, we've already gotten a couple in. Absolutely. So uh, go ahead and get fire off those emails to us this week. We'd love to get to them there on the show. And I'm looking forward to it, man. And I'm looking forward to the book, too. Uh, don't forget, uh, we have links in our show notes so you can pre-order the book. And I believe you're doing signed copies, too, right, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. People can order signed copies through the oldmillpress.com. So uh, please do that. Uh, There's only a limited number of those uh, available. Uh, And the book will not be available until November 16th. But if you order the pre, if you do the pre-order with the signed copies, you'll probably get it about three or four weeks before the book releases. There you go. And I definitely suggest that you hop on that as soon as you can, because these books are just lovingly uh, assembled and put together, crafted by Dave. And, uh, you know, like the 3D Disneyland book, uh, you're going to enjoy every single page. So I I can't wait for that. That's a big, uh, a big thing for Disney fans everywhere. Get this book. But anyway, Dave, uh, once again, fans, thank you so much for tuning in. You got this far in the show. We appreciate it. Don't forget to leave us those reviews, especially on Apple Music or Apple Music on uh, 
uh, Apple Podcast. <laughs> Definitely do that. And subscribe to the show. Share it with your friends on social. Of course, you can follow us as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And be sure to visit the show archive at Anchor FM or SkullRockPodcast.com or listen to the streaming version of this show on Sorcery Radio at SRSounds.com. You can also email us. We'd appreciate it. Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. And thank you so much to all of our listener supporters as well from Anchor. And Dave, I'll leave you with a final word. Well, as always, Al John, peace and love to everybody. Uh, it's a new week. Go out there, enjoy yourselves, be kind to one another, mask up, get vaccinated. We're getting through this pandemic. Uh, hopefully it's not going to spike into the fall. And we look forward to seeing you next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com i'm kristen hetzel vacation planner world traveler disney foodie and theme park fan I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, The Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.